ISIS comes in and they destroy the art. There's something incredibly threatening to this kind of fundamentalist ideology about anyone who can imagine anything beyond what I tell you to believe. So imagination is, is so scary, which means imagination is so powerful. This is the Hillsong Creative Podcast, where we hear from creative experts and influencers, the dreamers and the doers, what they've learned and what we can learn from their journey as we explore, respond, and create. I'm Rich Langton, and on today's episode, we have Jeremy Courtney from Preemptive Love. Hey, well, welcome back to the podcast. It's so good to have you listening today. On today's episode, we have Jeremy Courtney from the Preemptive Love Coalition. Some people you meet, they come and go out of your life almost immediately and others leave a lasting impression. And some conversations you have, they, they impact you forever. And this was one of those conversations for me. If you don't know Jeremy, you might be wondering why we would have someone from a ministry like Preemptive Love on a creative podcast. And you'll find out why uh, as we start the interview. We talk a lot about storytelling, about imagination, about the, the, the place of art in difficult situations. And I think you'll find this conversation like I did, very a poignant reminder of the power of imagination and how we need to turn that into action. So let's jump into the interview and I'll talk to you again at the end. Okay, so Jeremy, thank you for coming in and Thanks for having me. chatting with me. I guess for our listeners, would you mind just telling us, I guess briefly, what this thing is called preemptive love? Preemptive love is above all a posture, but it's also a posture that we've seen more and more and more people take over the last number of years. So it's an idea and then it's become an organization. I don't know, maybe a community, maybe something more than that. As an idea, it's this idea that we would seek to be a people who would move in first with love. You're you're familiar with preemptive strike, which says, I'm going to get you before you can get me. And we wanted to flip the script on that a little bit and say, what if there was a community of people out there who would seek to love you before you could love me, love you before you could get me, do good things for you before you could do bad things against me, do good things for you maybe even if you did do bad things against Mm. me. And so we've been trying to build a community, an organization, momentum around this idea. So we're also an organization then. We're, we're We're a team of people that live in many places all over the world working on the front lines of conflict. And these conflicts can be as extreme as the Syrian civil war, uh, the front lines of ISIS mm. in Iraq. Uh, and it can also be things that kind of live at a chronic low-grade hum but seem like they're kind of amping up right now, like race relations in America. How how can we mobilize people to live a posture of pre- preemptive love mm. on the front lines mm. wherever we live, wherever we find ourselves? Yeah. I find it really interesting that you would describe it first as a posture, um, because it's not, I guess it's not the way, uh, if, if I was 
thinking of an organisation, for example, that's not the, not the first thing I would mm. think of. Um, it's the same with Hillsong Church when you say, um, when people ask what Hillsong Church is, they think of the building and they think of the music and they think of all sorts of things that in actual fact it's, it's not. But it takes a bit of thought and um, I guess it, it takes maybe living it to know how to describe it in such a way uh, as a posture. Um, is that for you, because I guess thinking of creativity, thinking of the audience who might be listening, did the name and that, I guess, the the way of thinking about it, did it come to you as a concept or did the, did you start living it and realizing, realize, oh, that's what we're doing? Mm. We, we're living this sort of love first way. Or did you sit at home and go, oh, sounds bad, but more like a branding exercise? Mm. I don't mean it negatively. Yeah, but, yeah. Mm. It, it came as a lighthouse on the shore of a very troubled sea and we were still a long distance away beckoning us home, helping us find our way back. Yeah. I mean, we had moved out of America into Iraq in the middle of the Iraq war. My faith was coming undone. My politics was coming undone. My, in some ways, my relationship or, I don't know, relatability to my family and my home and my community and my church was coming undone. Mm because I was seeing this war with a face on it now. Right. Now it wasn't just the headline news and the face it had wasn't just our soldiers. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just our boys and our girls over there fighting. Right. It was the other face that we so rarely saw, the face of the Iraqi, the face of, mm. of the person who was at home and having this thing come on them into mm. their home. And I think once I started seeing that, it just everything was coming apart. And, and we had launched out from the shore yeah. And we're a, a vessel on the seas, and now the seas are rocky and turbulent. And how do we find our way back home? This idea of preemptive love appeared as a lighthouse, I think, saying there is a way to be made whole again. There, there is a way to find yourself back mm-hmm. on stable ground, as it were. But it's this idea, and it's a new idea, and it's actually a new shore. You've, you haven't actually walked these shores before. But you don't have to live forever on the tumultuous sea. You can uh-huh. you can find your way back to land. Mm. So then the idea of it, you, you strike me as the sort of person that thinks in pictures, or mm. or that you know the way you the language that you use. You're talking about a turbulent sea, and um, to, it, just even the way you describe that season, it's really visual. Um, how do you see that? Is it God just gives you this way of describing that time, but then preemptive love was. It, how do you understand that that's how, that's how you come to des- uh, describe what it is that you're doing? Yeah. I don't know. I've never used that word picture before. Just, really? That was yeah. just something that occurred to me as you asked, how did it appear to you? And suddenly this, this beaming light from a lighthouse uh, popped into my head. Uh-huh. I remember reading Leo Tolstoy, The Kingdom of God is Within You. And it's, I guess, largely considered to be his book on nonviolence, um, or it's a, at least a significant part of what it explores. And I don't remember the book well, but I remember it got in me and, mm. and was working on me in an incre- incredibly poignant time, important time in our life. And then the other thing I remember is, is a songwriter whom I love, is a friend now, but was not a friend at the time, mm. named Derek Webb from a band called Cademan's Call. Uh-huh. In, a, in a side project or, or solo project he had, called Mockingbird, he was really 
contemplating the Iraq war and the politic and the marriage of state, empire, religion, Jesus, mm. all of that stuff, I think, that, that was going on in America at that time and, and still going on today. He was exploring it in song, and um, one of the lines, maybe above all others, jumped out and just banged around in my head incessantly. I couldn't get it to go away mm. as he sang, how can I kill the one I'm supposed to love? Mm. My enemies are men like me. Mm. George W. Bush, our president, was understandably, quite naturally, um, the momentum of everything in America had been heading toward this moment. Mm. It doesn't surprise me, mm. uh, but had framed up the war as a coalition. We're creating a coalition of the willing, and it was right. ended up being kind of a if you're not for us, you're an against you're against us sort yeah. of move. Um, he introduced a really famous phrase, the axis of evil, mm-hmm. early on in this process, which has now become basically our favorite places to to hang out and try and work. <laughs> Iraq, Iran, <laughs> North Korea, uh, Libya, Somalia, you know, these, these right. great vacation spots. I don't remember quite how it all came about, uh, I guess, in that in that way, how we settled on that phrase, but it was definitely birthed out of Tolstoy and, mm. and Derek's songs. Yeah. And, and the fact that we had committed a preemptive war against Iraq. Yes. And we wanted to stand that on its head and say, what, yeah. what if there was a community who, who could be different? Uh-huh. In those places that you now, you, you call them great holiday spots, they're the places that people are trying to avoid and they, they're where you're doing your work and where, where you live. How do you see or is there a place for, for art, for creativity mm. In, in those places, in the devastated places? Or is it just for the big cities with lots of money and everything's going well? And It's a profound question. One of the things that we see all across these communities um, over the last couple of years in Iraq or Syria when we drive into town is that the first thing ISIS does when they come to town is destroy the art whether it's a school building that had a couple of kids painted on the outside wall in a mural that just basically means to say, this is where kids come and play. Welcome. Here's Mickey Mouse. Here's Donald Duck. Here's Mm. the Smurfs. Boys and girls holding hands, Mm. showing friendship and respect for one another in in small little West Iraqi village towns. The crescent moon and the cross painted on the backpacks of two kids who are walking down the street Mm. together, showing that we don't have to be at odds with one another, that that we're in this together. ISIS comes in and they destroy the art. They they scratch the faces off the Smurfs. They deface Mickey Mouse. (laughs) There's something incredibly threatening to this kind of fundamentalist ideology Mm. about anyone who can imagine anything beyond what I tell you to believe. Right. So imagination is, is so scary, mm. which means imagination is so powerful. Right. Imagination is, it should be scary, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just ISIS. Uh, dictators in all kinds of places all over the world, mm. even, so w- even when it's all centralized in one person, they do the same thing. They mm. destroy art. They shut down public radio stations. They, they tamp down on the music. Mm. This is where life and vitality find its way. And so they, that is threatening mm. to them. Yeah. So no, I, I don't think it's just for big cities. Um, ISIS apparently feels very threatened by it in small villages as mm. well mm. and in big cities. And so 
I say that's where we go with it. That, that's that's where we should take it. I love that. We were recently in New Zealand in Christchurch where there was a big earthquake a number of years ago and the, the rebuilding process is, is happening. Mm. But part of that rebuilding process, the I guess the local government ended up bringing in artists who mm. uh, they've done street art um, all over the city and so these these half-broken-down walls have become pieces of... Um, they're really beautiful now. They signify so much because there's the brokenness of the wall and then there's the, I guess, the rebirth and the, the life of, mm. of what the artist has brought. So it resonates with me what you're saying about taking the art to... Um, to these broken places. I love what you said about imagination too um, and how, I guess, how powerful it can be. I guess ISIS is wanting to strike out or to get rid of people's imagination of, of, of belief in a better day. Um, but as creatives, mm. we, we're all about belief that, I mean, particularly obviously Christian creatives, we, we believe that God has a better day coming um, and our art can be so powerful in that. But in that... I feel like, you know, in chatting with you now and, and previously, part of the beauty of what you, um, the way you describe things is so, um, so poetic and there's such great narrative and story in the way you describe things. And I think for me, listening to some of the stories um, that you tell, you tell them so well that I feel like, it's crazy, but I feel like I know the people you're describing mm. and I can imagine what they They've gone, they've gone through and the things that you've gone through. Have you always been a storyteller or is that as a result of the things that you've seen? Mm. Do you have more stories to tell now? Wow. Well, first of all, it's a profound compliment to, to, because these, these feel like such burdensome weights to carry around people's stories. And, yeah. and, and it feels like if we don't wield them well, how will they ever find their way into the world? And how can we connect each other? And I mean, so much, I'd say, dare say, everything we do is about connecting people. We actually say that our, we, we often say that our mission is beginning the end of violence. And what we mean by that is really just connecting people. Mm. If, we, if we connect each other and we know each other and we relate to each other, mm. we are demonstrably less likely to hurt each other. Mm. But the problem is we don't know each other. Right. We don't know the person on the other side of us often, let alone the other side of the world. Mm. Have I always told stories this way? You know, I, I came up as what I guess we would call a creative as a songwriter, mm -hmm. um, nurtured, encouraged in the church as countless songwriters over generations have, right? Yeah. But I came in through a very didactic, let me tell you what I believe kind of mm -hmm. songwriting, which is often very suitable for church life where we're going to sing out something, whether right. it's call and response or whatever, we're all going to sing it together. That's often how we conceive, you know, a lot of the songs that we share. And I would have, in early years, you know, I would have uh, followed in the style of, of any number of well-known church songwriters. Then I moved overseas and I, I moved into these communities and I moved into life and I moved into poverty and I moved into war and I moved into these things that were completely foreign to the place from which I had been previously writing songs, to the experiences from which I had been previously writing songs. And I tried, I really tried to be a faithful <laughs> agent of that predominant way of writing 
what I guess we kind of know as maybe a formulaic worship song. You right. know, it was would have been a hymn in generations past. But yeah. there's a formula. There's a, there's a bit of a thing that we know, plug and play. There's better and worse, but yeah. there's still a template. Mm. I tried to keep that template because it was everything I'd known, but it didn't work anymore. Like what I would have called musical worship itself did not work anymore mm. for me because the stories couldn't keep up with or, or couldn't rise to the occasion of the template, the mm. lyric. Mm. Everything was so much harder. Everything was so much more complex. And frankly, we didn't have songs to sing that reflected the complexity of my friend Suleiman, who had been some upstanding guy in the community and had gotten in a car accident and had massive brain damage and now wandered around the streets barefoot and homeless and stinking Mm. and made fun of. Mm. And he was just the town kook that lived in my neighborhood. Mm. But I'd lived such an insulated life up until that point. I didn't, this wasn't even some extreme like Middle Eastern thing or Mm. Muslim or war or terror thing. It was just a poor guy. And somehow just his story and then war stories and so many other things our lyrics just couldn't keep up. And so I started writing my own songs that would have just been in the realm of, you know, the American singer-songwriter kind of thing, you know, like trying to be like Bob Dylan. Right. (laughs) Just trying to tell a story, Mm -hmm. even if it's long and interloping and doesn't keep on meter and, you know, whatever. Just try and tell a story. And the more I started doing that, the more my own heart was transformed and the more Uh I realized, wow, like, it's a whole other thing that I think I can really know as as worship. Mm. I still love that template, but this other thing of telling a story made me come alive in a new way. I don't know. Somewhere along that mm. trajectory, I, I think my I became a storyteller. Yeah. Whereas before, I had been a point maker mm. or a, a reciter of someone else's thing. Right. I understand it. Yeah. We'll get back to the interview in a moment, but I wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by our Hillsong Worship and Creative Conference. The conference happens every year in November, and this interview was actually recorded at our at our conference last year, where Jeremy was a contributor, and where we talked about preemptive love, and we were able to contribute to preemptive love as a conference. It's a conference for all creatives, and as you can tell from this interview, everybody is creative, and there's creative ways to approach every aspect of life. Check out the conference at hillsong.com forward slash WCC and please register and come and be a part of it because we'd love to have you there. But now let's jump back into the interview with Jeremy Courtney. This is Jeremy Courtney and these are my Fantastic Four. The last book I read was called The Four by Scott Calloway, I believe, about Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Apple as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. (laughs) There are so many jobs that I would be terrible at, but if I had to pick the one job I would be most terrible at, probably anything my wife does. Probably anything that is Jessica's responsibility is the thing that I would be terrible at. And so we get to play this wonderfully complimentary role to each other. My favorite place to recharge is probably anywhere I can be alone. It doesn't necessarily matter if that is alone with really good noise-canceling headphones in a cafe or alone in the house with no one there. I just need 
I need to be alone. If everyone else goes to bed at 8, maybe I only need till 9 or 10 to be alone. If everyone else goes to bed at midnight or 1, then I have to stay up another couple of hours to be alone. The, the piece of work that I'm most satisfied with is, is maybe a little bit nebulous to think about in the creative realm, but I, I would have to say it's the creation and the creativity that brought forth this thing that we call the Preemptive Love Coalition. It's a movement of people, it's a community, it's a legal entity. Um, I guess it'd be easier to choose a song that I've written or, or a website I've designed or something like that, but uh, I think in many ways all of that rolls up into and was, and was headed toward Preemptive Love itself. You said something about um, you realised the value of people's stories and mm. what you're carrying. Mm. I guess the uh, the thing about it is that we can so undervalue narrative, mm-hmm. we can so undervalue what it is we have in our hand and yet you seem not to be doing that and I appreciate it. Mm. Um, one story that um, I did want to ask you about or ask you to tell real maybe briefly but is the story about the soap because... To me, there's a whole conversation we could have around, I guess, around valuing something as simple as the creativity found in making some soap. Mm. But could you land us with the fact that you make soap and tell us why? So there's this, this small group of people that border Syria and Iraq mm. called the Yazidi people. They're a distinct ethnicity, they're a distinct religion, and they are particularly targeted, hated by a fundamentalist group like ISIS, who would call them Satan worshippers or fire worshippers. But that's not true. We know these people. They're our friends. Mm. Uh, They would, without hesitation, say they are monotheistic worshippers of God. Mm. But ISIS targets them, and they don't fall under the protections that early conceptions of fundamentalist war afforded to Christians afforded to Jews, afforded to what they call people of the book. And so because this Yazidi group falls outside of that, they've been very easily and wantonly attacked by ISIS. Their men have been slaughtered in mass. Their women have been kidnapped and captured from nine years old up and subjected to all the perverse things that, that you can imagine. And one day this woman, as ISIS was rampaging their way across this part of Syria and Iraq, was headed toward her village. Her name is Sozan. And she knows that ISIS is making their way kind of town by town, village by village. And so they have enough of a heads up to throw their family in the family sedan and try to escape. And they head up a nearby mountain that sort of defines the region. It's the defining monument or or landmark of the region. And they, they escape up the mountain. ISIS chases them to the mountain's edge. Enough of the guys have a few pistols and AK-47s or whatever to hold ISIS off at the bottom for a while. But um, a lot of those guys die. The women and their children end up making it more up the mountain and reach a relative safety. But it's summer, June, July, uh, that all this is playing out over the course of of months. In, In August of 2014, they find themselves trapped on the top of this mountain and parched 50 degrees Celsius, 125-some degree Fahrenheit, summer heat, starving, parched, and um, they're not going to make it. Her daughter, Sozan's daughter, ends up dying uh, in the flight from ISIS. We hear stories of other women who who 
in their mercy, in their love for their children, actually throw their children off the side of the mountain to save their life. Because should ISIS come and find them and catch them, it, it would be too much. What would happen to them? They're slowly starving to death. I, I can't watch that anymore. In my mercy, let me save you. Right. Suddenly, some military support comes in, punches a hole in the ISIS front line, and a number of these people escape where we meet Sozan. We meet her after she's escaped this horrible, horrible ordeal. She's traumatized. She's with a bunch of other people who are all fresh out of this situation, traumatized, but alive, mm. downcast, depressed, you know, in a clinical sense, mm. and living in tents, living in makeshift buildings, living in half-built shelters. Uh, oh, there's a shipping container that someone abandoned. Let's crawl in there and make that our home. And we come along and start providing just emergency food and, and water and clothes. And then realize this is over over weeks, realize you guys aren't going to be able to go home. I mean, how can we help you really stand on your own two feet again? So my wife, Jessica, is, is really forming a, a closer relationship with these friends and asks people in the community, who wants to join me? I'll teach you to make soap. You can sell it. We'll help you sell it. I'll even buy the first number of bars from you mm-hmm. so that you have a safety net. And uh, that'll give you some income. You'll be working for it. This mm. isn't charity. And, you know, if it mm. goes well, then you'll have something, a little business for yourself. Mm. But this is a traumatized community. They, they don't have what we've been talking about here, imagination. Right. What they have are memories. And all the memories are bad. They don't have an imagination for what could live on the other side of all this death. But Jessica, having not been traumatized in the way that they are, still has a modicum of imagination, still has the capacity to dream on behalf of others. And so these two worlds kind of collide and Jessica dreams for them and a few of them raise their hand and say, okay, we don't really believe you, but we'll let you occupy our time or we'll let you dream for us or we'll take this walk with you, whatever it is. Over time, she teaches them to make soap, this pure, pristine, beautiful olive oil soap that has been actually indigenous to the region for years. Uh, but fell out of production when the Syrian civil war set off. So there's actually been, there's a real market need for it as well. Mm -hmm. This wasn't just some arbitrary project. And Sozan is our friend in this community, but she opts out. She's too depressed. She Mm -hmm. sees no point in it. Jessica works with these ladies over the course of days and weeks and months, and it's finally time. The the soap is prepared. It's been cut. It's dried for the weeks that it needs to dry and Mm -hmm. cure. And she comes, and she comes with mountains of money, (laughs) to buy this soap from these women. They've done their hard work. They've learned their trade. They're making it on their own now, and it's time for us to buy from them. Mm. We're not giving charity. Mm. They're selling us a product. Mm -hmm. She gives them this mountain of money, each of Mm -hmm. them. It's more money than they've held in their life, more money than they've held in their hands in their entire life. And this is a time of mourning. They've still got their sisters and their cousins and their daughters enslaved by ISIS. No one's supposed to be smiling. No one's supposed to be laughing, but soap. Mm they can't hide it Mm. and it's uncouth and it's improper and it's embarrassing. They're shamed Mm. in a way, but they can't stop smiling. Mm. They actually pull their headscarves up over their mouth to hide their smiles. But Jessica said, but you, their, their eyes just wouldn't stop smiling. You could see that their eyes were smiling. And Jessica just felt this moment was upon her. The whole community had gathered for this sort of payment ceremony. There's no privacy <laughs> in a lot of these parts of the world, and even less so that, that they're all living in tents and stuff. Mm. And uh, she just feels this moment of like energy and electricity and hopefulness right there in the midst of the depression. And she says, how many of you want to make soap now? 
the, a lot of the community had opted out before. Right. Only these two had opted in, and now it's payday. The whole like community of women raises their hand and says, "We want in on that." And so they go deeper, and over the next weeks and months, she teaches Sozan and and many others mm-hmm. to make this soap. And in the midst of this, our team takes a trip to their their region. A town had just been liberated from ISIS control. Mm-hmm. And our team's walking in the field and stumbles upon this mass grave. Bones just right there on the surface of the earth. One guy's skull, another guy's femur, mm. pelvic bone clearly right here. It's winter, it's muddy, it's disgusting, it's, everything's just dank. And here there are these pile of bones that no one's documented yet. No one's been around to mark it off and protect it. And it's just death right there on the surface of the earth. So shamefully. Exposed, And it, it just seems to speak so much to the, the country at the time, how, what we were all feeling at the time. And Jessica continues on. We come back from that trip and Jessica continues on with this family. And we're all broken by these, these experiences and we share the photos and everyone's just really intensely broken by it. But, but Jessica keeps on with her imagination. She keeps on with her dreams. She keeps pushing them to make and create. And we grab flowers called chamomile flowers and grind them up and put them in the soap and make rose-petaled soap and they start experimenting with some other beautiful soaps. And sometime later in the spring, I guess, I, I go back to the region where their town had been liberated from ISIS and we're out walking in the, in the prairie at the base of the mountain again and we, we round up over this, this hill or this mound and there's this same death, this mass grave. Mm. Only this time... The entire prairie is just completely covered in flowers. It's just a, a sea of beautiful flowers. And up through the very skull eye socket and mm. encompassing the pelvic bone and pushing over the femur are all these wild, wild, beautiful flowers. Mm. And it just was this poignant moment for me of remembering that even in the midst of death, even in the midst of Genocide, and I do not say that or take that lightly. It was profound, but life will not be denied. Mm. Sozan was pregnant. She was begging God, don't make me bring another life into this world. Mm. But soap, Mm. but imagination, but a little bit of income, but something to put your hands to. Mm. And the image of a prairie of death suddenly bursting forth with life. And it just gave us courage to believe again, one day at a time, that this thing we dream about, this thing we hope about, life after death, life in spite of death, life in the midst of death, it has to be real. I've seen it. Mm. I've seen it over and over and over and over and mm. over again. And so we keep renewing our hope in it, renewing our faith in it, mm. and, and committing ourselves again and again to the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. Mm. And now Sozan's baby has come into the world. and Amazing. Jessica was there at her side and now he's crawling and now he's walking and, Mm. and this whole community has been completely transformed Mm. by this soap uh, and what they're able to do with it. And, Uh and we've been able to multiply out the products now. It's, it's handmade candles and leather goods and knitwear and Mm. and this whole idea of being in relationship together and Mm. pushing through death toward life Mm. has been so meaningful for all of us. Mm. 
Thank you. Yeah, there's so much to be encouraged by, I think, in that story. Um, in amongst, like you said, the death and the turmoil and the, the tragedy of it, of it all, um, I guess just seeing how God can use something so simple as imagination, which turns into soap, um, which is attached to a story, you know. Um, God can use it all. And um, I, I remember we're chatting about this earlier, but I remember the first time we met and you gave me a bar of soap and, you know, I didn't know the story at all, but you handed it to me and then told me some of the story of the ladies who make the soap. And all of a sudden in my hand I had what you described earlier as the value of a story. Mm. Um, and I remember just walking away humbled that I that I didn't even want to use the soap because I think it's actually literally still in our bathroom. I haven't used it because because of the value of someone's story really is attached to that that piece of creation, that creativity. And um, attached to that creativity is yourself and your wife's imagination. And, um, and I think there's something really profound in that for all creatives mm-hmm. that, that we, what we talked about, we rub shoulders with people and we hear their stories and we have the opportunity to imagine what God might do in that person's life and imagine what God might do with that story. And it might be an artwork, it might be a piece of soap, it might be, it might be um, you know, a song. But I think we, we need to value, uh, in, in a sense, the imaginata- imagination attached to the creativity creativity and not just see it as I guess just as notes on a page or as melodies but as something that that's truly valuable that God God sort of breathes on and and can um can bring life in dead places and and that includes corporate environments Uh where a lot of our friends are probably listening right now it includes co-working spaces where yeah. you're totally alone and trying mm. to figure out how to do the freelance yeah. thing. It, it's uh, inside traditional spiritual work. It's outside mm. traditional spiritual work. It's, yeah. it's all spiritual. That's the point. Uh-huh. And it's all generative and it mm. all brings life wherever it goes. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I wish we had longer. We'll have to come back, have you, an- another time. It'd be but, my honor. Um, it's been fun. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm not sure about your response to that interview, but for me, that was a real a weighty moment in time and one that stuck with me since the, the conversation with Jeremy. I noticed that Jeremy sees the place of art and sees the power of art and imagination and story in these crazy war-torn places. I think imagination can be so easily just not seen or not thought about and we cannot work on our imagination and we can almost see it as not a not a godly pursuit to dream and to imagine and yet it's out of imagine imagination that jeremy and preemptive love were able to to you know the end result was to create soap which is literally changing lives hearing someone's story, adding, attaching imagination to it, and then the result is changed lives and changed lives through a creative pursuit like creating soap. It's so, it seems so little if you just look at the soap, if you don't know the story that's attached to it, but the, um, well, the whole thing is a result of someone imagining what could be and a better way that could be. And I don't know, I think I sometimes just don't even don't even think about imagination and work on imagining and really dreaming around people's stories, whereas Jeremy's just taken the complete opposite approach. And I think it's awesome and I think we should follow his example. 
It's almost like imagination has been sanctified in the way Jeremy approaches it. It's been brought, grace has been attached to it and it's, and it's then, it's able to be used by God like anything else. Um, and sometimes I think our imagination, because we can be, we can be creatives that just want to, you know, be off in our dream worlds and, and it's very, it, it can be self-indulgent. We can imagine all this, this dream world for ourselves or this, you know, this, these pursuits for ourselves. And sometimes we don't necessarily bring it in under the gospel and in under grace. And I love it that that imagination of all things could be, could be something that God could use. Um, I think it's when you step back, isn't it, that you can see in someone else's life, oh, that's amazing. Jeremy's over in these far-flung countries where there's real contrast. And yet every day we go into situations where God can use our imagination to bring hope, to bring gospel and create pathways for people through the mess they find themselves in, um, the situations they find themselves in. And I think the place of imagination, it's vital in that. If we see it from a godly perspective and if we sanctify our imagination, I love it. I think it's so cool because everybody can imagine. Everybody can bring that to the table. We all have the ability to imagine. Imagination is a gift that God gives us to create new realities. Next up, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We have the Creative Compass where Mush, Annie and myself talk about some of the values that we're trying to unpack as a creative community. So over the last few years, we've gone on the journey of, I guess, moving from just being a worship team per se to being a creative team, which encompasses obviously being worshippers, but worshippers in in the sense of not just being musicians and singers, Mm. but worshippers who lead worship through other things like mush in your area, yeah. um, the production, sound and lighting, or yeah. we have a photography team and a dance team and all the arts. Um, and so being artisans has been something, I guess, that we would value. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's been a, been a really good journey to kind of bring the understanding within the technical realm that it is, these are crafts that are artistic a front of house mix or a lighting design or a, you know, a stage design mm. or what all these things have crafts and specific artisanal kind of skills attached to them. Mm. So I think that awareness amongst the team that it's not just something you do in the back and it's just in, that's a means to an end. It is something that has an artistic expression attached to it. And yeah. so whilst it might not look like painting, in and of itself, as you're crafting, as you're pulling your mix together, as you're creating your lighting design, as you're mm. creating a drafting up a stage design, that is in itself an art form that is very much a part of who we are and what we do. Yes. And it's been great because I think it opens doors and, and it, it opens the understanding and it actually gives people license to try new things mm. and to improve and to work and not just look at different avenues of doing the same thing and all that kind of stuff that we really want and want to be able to progress ourselves in. So, yeah, it's been really, really good. Recently, I saw uh, one of the ice cream companies here in in Sydney um, 
advertising artisan ice cream. And, um, and I took note <laughs> of it, it because I thought it, it was so funny because they're obviously mass produced, but they're trying to show this handcrafted yeah. sort yeah. of one of a kind, yeah. lots of effort has been put into this yeah. single unique. ice cream. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. unique thing. Yeah. And, um, and I almost thought it was like this brass value um, for them. For, whereas what we're trying to achieve in our team is, is true artisanship, you know, where mm. where each area, whether it be lighting or whether it be sound or whether it be singing or dancing or poetry or whatever it might be, that that our team take it so seriously and love it so much that they they would handcraft, they would utilize whatever's in their hands, you know, God's put it something in their hands and that they would do it so well, they would honor it so well that they would take the time and put in the, in effort, the effort to yeah. mm-hmm. to handcraft. Yeah. That yeah. and that could even be um, for the worship leaders. That could even be a moment. Um, so we we would encourage our worship leaders to be prayerfully considering the flow of of their set list and the songs and really crafting that so that it would be almost handcrafted, mm-hmm. like an artisan presenting that to God, but to the congregation to then participate mm-hmm. in that. Yeah. Really love the thought love that. That we would do something for the love of it, yeah, and yeah. Th- and that we would care so much that we would handcraft a moment right. like that. I think what we found is it's actually interesting when you when we use that kind of approach and language, people feel like, oh, really? You mean I can actually just spend time and invest myself heavily mm. into making this thing as good as it can be? Yeah, the area of church life that I'm involved in, the technical aspects. People feel like, oh, wow, so I can care and I can continue to care so deeply about this thing and obsess, almost obsess over it to mm-hmm. be able to make sure that on the other end of this, mm-hmm. it's as special or as unique or as amazing as it could be. Mm-hmm. That in itself, the team feeling like they've got a license to do that is a very mm-hmm. freeing thing uh-huh. and very empowering thing that, yes. I, that I can care as much as I'd love to about this. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm actually encouraged to do so. Yes. It's fantastic, mm-hmm. you know. And then the... What I like about that as well is that we, um, when we allow people to do that, that then can be their their worship. That right. can be their offering, and it's um, exactly it's not restrictive to just the charismatic leader up the front. Exactly, it could right. be the person who you never see out the back somewhere, yep. or yep. it could be the person taking photographs or, yep. or whatever it might be. But each of us can contribute in that way, yep. mm-hmm. where we care enough and we steward the thing that God's put in our hand um, like an artisan would do. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important as well. um, Like we use our gifts for service and to glorify God, Mm -hmm. but even just to when it's not a serving opportunity or a leadership thing, just on your own to Mm -hmm. keep exploring and growing in your gift and discovering it more and allowing God to teach you and unlock things. Because I think then when you do have an opportunity to use it, it kind of spills over into that. See, that's interesting, just that particular example, because what that looks like from our end, like any given day of the week here in our Hills facility, we'll find guys sitting at desks with nobody in the auditorium. Wow. 3,500-seat auditorium, just sitting at the desk by themselves mm. with headphones on, playing back what happened last Sunday, mm. reviewing it, trying to get it better, looking mm. for ways to do it. Nobody's on the receiving end of what they're doing right then, right. but it just speaks to their passion yeah, and how cool. much they love what they do. Yeah. Because, you know, when it comes, like Annie said, when it comes to Sunday, the cumulative effect of that is mm. whatever they bring on Sunday has had so much passion invested into mm. it and such a desire to really be good at what they're doing mm. that it can't help but bring something special. 
Well, that's it for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that on iTunes, YouTube, or SoundCloud. And I'd encourage you to do that so you can be a part of the journey with us. We'd love to hear from you too. So if you want to give us your comments, do that on our Instagram. It's at HillsongWCC. And we'll see you next time.